I just don't mess it up. That was pitiful. Hadn't the music been great today? <laughs> we can't go out with a smattering of applause. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You're going to notice in the bulletin there's only two points this morning. I had to do that because last week I had four points. So I threw the preaching world out of balance for a week, so we're getting it back today. I just hope it's not like a cowboy in Texas when I was in seminary said, said that was a longhorn sermon. You ever heard that phrase, longhorn sermon? I said, what is a longhorn sermon? He said, that's where you have two points and a lot of bull in between. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to make this not a longhorn sermon today. We're talking about spiritual warfare, and unfortunately, some of the warfare we experience as, as Christians is from one another. I asked somebody one day, I said, what is your vision for your church? And their, their response was, well, I, I want to see this building filled. And I thought, well, that's really not a vision. I can tell you how to fill your building next week. Just have a church fight. We had a group here on campus. I happened to know the youth pastor. And I said, well, how's church going? He said, well, last night we had to call the police. I said, what? He said, yeah, this lady stood up in church. And made some comment. Another lady stood up on the other side of church and said, Are you talking about me? <laughs> and the other lady said, Yeah, that's right, I'm talking about you. And they broke out in a fight had to call the police. That's really not the spiritual warfare we ought to be engaged in. In fact, when they got here, one of the ladies said, Yeah, we're going to come out with T-shirts. Nobody fights like Baptists. Some of you here are Baptists, you know what I'm talking about, but you know what, that kind of crosses denominational lines at times. We're fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons, and the scary thing is if you're involved in that, you're being used as a weapon by the enemy. And so Paul addresses an issue in the church in Corinth. In fact, really, he, you know, he's written first and second Corinthians. We believe, or scholars believe, He'd really written four letters because he refers to other letters, just two that have made it into the canon of Scripture. And a lot of what he's dealing with is about the fact that although Corinth was a wealthy, prosperous city, that wealth and prosperity did not buy them peace in the church. In fact, it was just the opposite. And there were false teachers there. Even though Paul had spent over 18 months in the church, the people should have known him better. Now that he's gone, there's these false prophets, false teachers that have come in saying things about Paul. And so Paul's had to address some of that in his writings to the church. Let's look at the first six verses of chapter 10, and then the second point will cover the rest. But here's Paul, and it becomes personal. Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you and absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. 
Paul turns a corner. He does this a few times in this letter by using the word now. But something he does really interesting, he says, but I, Paul, myself. He started the letter by saying this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Timothy was with Paul. They kind of wrote this letter together, together fleshed out the doctrine of it together. But now Paul gets to chapter 10 and says, now I've got to say something personal. And so Paul says a personal word to the church in Corinth. And he actually begins to tell him what he's going to tell him. Then he takes a parenthesis. He says, I urge you. Literally, I call you near. I invite you with me to consider what I'm about to share with you. And so Paul says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, that was kind of the opposite of what the, the false teachers were accusing Paul of. But here's what Paul says. What I'm about to ask you, the request I'm about to make, the urging, I'm bringing that on behalf of what I've learned from Jesus, that he is meek and gentle. And in case those words translate to wimpy to you, you're not getting what meek and gentle mean. The word meek does mean humility and forbearance, but it's an inward virtue that results in patience towards the offender. And so Paul's, Paul could have, I mean, there, there could have been smoke coming out of his ears as he addresses these false teachers and the lies they've been spreading, but he addresses them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he says not only the meekness, but the gentleness of Christ. The word gentleness is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, but the word gentle is used often. In fact, Jesus used it of himself. Come unto me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle. And does that word, again, does it sound like wimp? We have a setting on our washing machine called the gentle cycle. There's not a thing in my wardrobe that I wash on the gentle cycle. But after being married for a while, I've been married for 35 years, it didn't take me long to find out there's some things my wife washes on the gentle cycle. And they use this detergent called Woolite. Now, men, does that sound like that's going to get dirt out? I want borax mule power detergent. I want something in there fighting for me, okay? I want it set on the kill cycle. And so sometimes that's what we think when we hear the word gentle. I'm not talking about washing stuff in, in wool light on the gentle cycle where all it does is teases the dirt. In fact, the word gentle means this. It means power under control. Best illustration I got for that, have you ever ridden a horse? A few of you. You've ridden a horse. Has the thought ever crossed your mind when you're sitting on the back of that horse, that horse is a whole lot more powerful than you are? That horse weighs more than you do. It has muscles that are bigger than yours. If that horse wanted to, it could do some serious damage. Here's the scary thing. It may be that horse is even smarter than you. This is going way back, but Gary Phillipson, our administrator, I was doing a retreat for a group of churches. He was a youth pastor and helped coordinate this, these retreats. And uh, went horseback riding. You remember this, Gary? Gary's nodding his head. Went horseback riding, and it was kind of funny. They put us on the back of these horses. In most places you go horseback riding, they have somebody in front of you and somebody behind you making sure you know where you're going and making sure you're not running the horses, mistreating or whatever. They didn't do that. They just said, head up this trail. When you get to the top, there's a stop sign. Wait there five minutes. Let the horses rest because they've climbed up this 
hill. So let the horses rest for five minutes, and after that, head along the ridge. This was right outside of Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. So beautiful view off this mountain. So Gary and I got to talking. We got to the top of the ridge, and I had kind of forgotten about the stop sign, but my horse hadn't. He stopped. I thought, whoa, yeah, that's right, Gary. We're supposed to stop and let him rest for a little while. We got to talking again. I didn't know five minutes had gone by. I remember looking at my watch, but I hadn't kept up with it. All of a sudden, my horse takes back off. And I thought, I didn't know he had on a hoof watch, you know. I didn't see him raise his hoof. But that horse was smart enough to know this is how we do this. This dummy on my back isn't paying attention, but I know the stop sign means stop and wait five minutes, and it was about five minutes we take back off. Folks, that is power under control. And so when Paul says, I come to you in meekness and gentleness, if Paul had been using human weapons, he would have come and just given them a string of, this is what you're doing wrong, This is, and, and just, I'm going to come and flex human muscles. He doesn't do that. He says, I come in meekness and gentleness the same way Christ comes. And the same way Christ had come to Paul. And then he takes this little parenthesis. It's kind of interesting. He said, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you and absent. This little parenthesis, he's saying, this is what's being said about me. Because he's going to get back in chapter, in verse 2, back to the ask. He's told him how he's going to ask him. And he kind of takes parenthesis. I myself, Paul. And here's what they're saying about me. I'm meek when face to face with you. What they're really saying is he's a coward when he's here. But he writes these weighty letters when he's not around. It's kind of like nowadays. If you're not careful, you can send a very aggressive email. Then once you see the person face-to-face, you're a little embarrassed by what you hit send to. And so Paul takes this little parenthesis and says, even then, we'll deal a little bit more with what they're saying about him in a minute, but this is how, how they talk about Paul. Is when you're face-to-face, you're a real wimp, but you don't mind writing these heavy-duty letters. But then he comes back to the ask. He says, here's what I'm asking. He said, I'm asking that when I'm present with you, I don't need to be bold. In other words, he's saying, I'm praying and I'm asking that you would repent, the ones of you that are reading this letter, that need to turn from what you've been doing. I'm praying that by the time I get there, that's already happened. In fact, really, the whole letter, a lot of what 2 Corinthians has been about is preparing them for his visit. Last couple of weeks, we looked at chapters 8 and 9, just talking about the offering. They've promised this bountiful offering. And Paul said, I'm on my way, and I'm bringing some people with me, just giving you a heads up so that when I get there, I'm not embarrassed, you're not embarrassed, so that you come through what you've promised. And now he says, even as I do come, I'm coming shortly. It's my prayer that when I get there, I don't have to be bold. It's my prayer that the sin has been dealt with before I get there. That's why I'm writing the letter, so that it would go ahead of me. And then he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. He's taken a line that the detractors had been using. Oh, Paul's walking in the flesh. In fact, believe it or not, one of the things they had against Paul was they thought there was no value to his ministry. Why? Because he wasn't charging for it. He deals with this elsewhere in the letter. These false teachers, the reason they wanted to usurp Paul's authority and his position with them is they wanted to get rich off the Corinthians. It was a wealthy city, and that wealth was in the church. And so if they could unseat Paul and they become the chief teacher and preacher in the church, they're thinking, we're going to get rich off of this. And so Paul says, as I come, yeah, I walk in the flesh, but I don't war according to the flesh. 
the false teachers thought Paul was like him, thought he had the same motivation that they did. But Paul says, I don't war according to the flesh. He did not rely on his own human resources. Folks, when I think about warring in the flesh, and I think about the weapons of our warfare, Paul says they're not of the flesh. What do fleshly weapons look like? You've seen them in the church. Fleshly weapons, here's some indicators. You're fighting the wrong enemy with the wrong weapons. You're using things like human ingenuity, human ideology, human methods. You're posturing for power. You just want to make yourself look good. And the only way you figure out how to do that is make everybody look less than you. You use things like gossip and backbiting and behind-the-scenes maneuvering. Here's some things I've heard in the church. Believe it or not, these are actually true stories. I've heard somebody say in a church, Preacher, they didn't say this to me, this is when I was a youth pastor. Preacher, I was here when you got here, I'll be here when you leave. Well, their churches, I know none that are represented here, but I'm talking about churches in far, far away places. I just, I hear about it. That there's churches that some of them have like two or three people in the church that just kind of run things. And so they posture for position. I had a, this actually happened in a church in Texas when I was in seminary. We were talking about reaching out to the community, visiting people that had visited our church and trying to reach lost people. And literally, a guy stood up. The, the sad thing is he was a deacon in the church. He stood up and said this. He said, the reason we joined this church is it was a small country church, and I intend to keep it that way. And, and I'm kind of thinking, where is that in Scripture? I think that's over there in first hesitations. <laughs> I think it says us four and no more. But folks, it is amazing what some people will fight over in the church. It's amazing. The color of the carpet. Or you name it. And you know what? The enemy, the devil, just loves that. Because if he can get us to fight each other, we're not fighting the real enemy. And if he can get us to use human weapons, they're ineffective. But they'll be effective in doing what he wants to do. It's sad. But Paul is saying, you know what, our weapons are not of the flesh. He says, our weapons are divinely powerful. I want you to get that. If you're in a situation where it looks bigger than you, whether it's a situation going on in your church or maybe outside the church or maybe just the world we live in, understand something. The weapons you and I fight with, if we're believers, don't have to be human. They should not be fleshly. They ought to be God's weapons, and when they are, they are divinely powerful. The word powerful, the root of that is the word dunamis. We get the word dynamite. Listen, there's nothing about our weapons, human fleshly weapons that are dynamite. But God is able to flex holy, powerful muscles. And understand something. One of the things Jesus said, and this is what's happening in the world today, He will build His church. Even when it looks grim. Even when Christians become the target of the world. Jesus is still building His church. And it will be that way till He returns. And Paul says these weapons are divinely powerful for three things. For the destruction of fortresses. 
The word destruction really means demolition. It means tearing down. And when he talked about fortresses, it's something you and I might not get, but every major Greek city had an Acropolis. An Acropolis was a fortified fort on top of a hill. And when the enemies came against the city, you would flee to the Acropolis. It was fortified. Here's the problem. If you flee to the Acropolis, it can also become a prison. And for some people, we don't have Acropolises that are buildings made with hands anymore, but it's the same kind of prison. What was Paul's Acropolis? Before Paul came to Christ, the thing that had imprisoned him was religion. Paul was a Jew among Jews. The Jews of the Old Testament, this beautiful following, this beautiful faith that was of God, they had twisted and turned it into a works religion. And Paul, his name was Saul before he came to Christ. He was a persecutor of Christians. And Paul had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the fortress was torn down. And Paul says the weapons that God fights with that are at our disposal are divinely powerful for tearing down fortresses and prisons. They're divinely powerful for destroying speculation, literally to demolish or lower, take down human reasoning, human philosophies, human theories, which is directly at the heart of what the false teachers were preaching. Third thing that these divine weapons do is they tear down everything that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And it takes every thought captive. Literally. Any thought that is anti-God, these weapons capture that, imprison that thought to the obedience of Christ. In fact, when Paul came to faith in Christ, he tells this, Again, in Acts chapter 22, earlier in Acts is his conversion experience, but as he remembers it in Acts 22, after he's had this experience on the road to Damascus where he's been blinded, here's what he said in Acts 22.10, What shall I do, Lord? That's what Paul's talking about. When you fight with divine weapons, the end result of that is people turning their life over to Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul's saying, church, it's going to become real obvious who the followers of Christ are and who the followers, who, those who've rejected Christ are. And I hope by the time I get there, your obedience is complete. It's been filled up so that we can attack those that are outside the faith. And the greatest weapon is truth. The reason some ministries are ineffective is because they're using the wrong weapons. And then the second thing this morning, real quickly, not only having a godly view of the fight, but a godly view of yourself. Let me read verses 7 and following. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance or presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. 
Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not too bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. And then verse 17, But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commends. The point of chapter 10 is Paul wants them to understand the fight, but he also wants them to understand themselves. He's basically saying, you're just looking at what's on the outside. If you're confident that you belong to Christ, understand something. We'll have that argument later, but understand something. We belong to Christ too. Now, what was their basis for believing they belonged to Christ? Maybe they had had a religious experience, but folks, their life did not demonstrate a godly character or person. They might have been members of the church. In fact, the attacks that Paul's talking about are not coming from outside the church. They're coming from within the church. And so Paul says, even if I should boast about this authority that God's given me, let me, let me make clear that the point of my ministry is to build people up and not tear them down. And, folks, I would that churches would listen to that. When I was a kid growing up, one of the things that bothered me about our youth ministry, and I would say even today, is how often in student ministry we tear each other down. We had this whole campaign, I remember one year was, let's edify one another. It means to build one another up. We came out with this joke, but it was basically, hey, edify, idiot. Well, that's not a good way of going about it. But be careful with things like negative humor. It's not just students that are guilty of that. It's adults. The cheapest form of making somebody laugh is tearing somebody else down to make other people laugh. I was the brunt of a lot of that. I had an older brother, five years older than me. So I was the brunt of a lot of that. And everybody's laughing. And maybe even the person that's being hurt laughs on the outside. But they're not laughing on the inside. They're being destroyed slowly. Paul said the purpose of the ministry God's called us to is not to tear down, but to build up. And I don't wish it to, be, to seem that I'm terrifying you by my letters. In fact, Paul's saying, listen, I understand, you're new believers. I'm not trying to scare you or send you running by my letters. And then verse 10, they say. My mom used to know they personally, because she would say that a lot. Well, you know what they say. They say his letters are weighty and strong. It's kind of funny what they're saying about his letters are weighty and strong. Was that true? Absolutely. Paul's letters were weighty and strong. But then they say, but his personal presence is unimpressive. In other words, to look at him, he just isn't much. Now, all that being said by people who that was all they had. All they had was personal aura and charisma. And, folks, there's preachers like that today. I went to a, to a men's conference with a group, and I'm on the bus with this group, and the, the men's conference was in Atlanta. And we're leaving, and some, somebody said, who was your favorite speaker tonight? Because there had been five or six. And, and, and several of them started talking about this one guy, and they looked at me and said, Robert, what would you think of him? And I said, well, what did he say? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, he said nothing. He just said it really well. Be careful that you're not, you're not caught by somebody's charisma or their personal 
aura or their charm, you've got to listen to what they're saying. If it doesn't square with Scripture, punt. His personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. They love sitting around and having debates. The Greek culture did. They just loved it. And Paul engaged in some of that. Look at Acts 17 and other places. But Paul said to them in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul's saying, listen, if you want to call my speech unimpressive, fine. But one thing you can't say is unimpressive is the power of God at work. In fact, here's how unimpressive Paul's speech was on one occasion. Acts chapter 20, verse 9. Remember Eutychus? He fell asleep while Paul's preaching. It said Eutychus is sitting in the window, kind of got a little drowsy. The more Paul talked, he falls out of the window and dies. You killed him with that message, Paul. Now, the good news is Paul goes down and Brings Eutychus back to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's speaking apparently at times was a little unimpressive. And yet there's something about our appearance and our speech. Maybe the more unimpressive it is, the more impressive God's power is able to be. Because you walk away just going, well, I know that wasn't him. Had to be God. So who gets credit? God does. And so Paul says, hey, if that's what you're saying about me, let's consider this. Understand this, what you read is what you get. Paul says, we're not going to be different when we get with you, but what you've read in these letters, that's how we're going to be when we get there. You're not going to get two different things. You you people who compare yourself with yourselves and measure yourself by yourself, you're looking pretty good in your own eyes. You ought to be comparing yourself to Jesus. I'll close with this thought. Paul says in verse 17, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. For it's not about being approved by yourself or even other people. But it's who the Lord commends. Here's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 25. He says there's coming a day when accounts get settled. And here's what you want to hear God say. Well done, my good and faithful servant. See, the church ought to be able to tell the difference between false teachers. The way you do that is by knowing the truth. The way they train tellers at the bank to recognize counterfeit money is not by bringing a bunch of counterfeit money in. They just let them handle only genuine bills. So it sticks out like a sore thumb when one's not genuine. So if we're struggling in the church with counterfeit Christians or counterfeit preachers, the more we know God's Word the more that ought to seem so out of place. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth that, yes, we are in a battle, but, Lord, it shouldn't be against each other. There's a battle going on against the principalities of this world, unseen forces, and the battle is yours. The victory is won. 
So God, may we find ourselves fighting with weapons that are divinely powerful, not just humanly ingenious. And God, at the end of the day, would our boast be only in you? And that's the approval we seek. It's the name Jesus, whose name we pray.